you have your Bible, let's turn today to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the black Bibles on the end of the pew, and it'll be on page 944, on to 945 today. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, then please keep that one. It's our gift to you. Uh, we were, we'll be uh, finishing up Romans 8 today and next week before we have uh, some more sort of Christmassy-themed times in the Word together at the end of December. We're going to continue on in this possibly greatest chapter in the whole Bible. So I'm going to start reading at verse 28, but we're going to be in verses 31 through 35 today, but I'll, I'll just give us the context starting at 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. So that's where we are today, starting at verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us is the idea. Um, you guys may be aware that the World Cup has been going on, and the U.S. was playing in it until yesterday. And uh, there was a great headline from the Babylon Bee yesterday, Nation Relieved to No Longer Have to Pretend to Like Soccer. Sorry for those of you who genuinely do, but there you go. But one of the things that I heard about this week was that some of the best soccer players who have ever lived uh, never competed in the World Cup because the other players from their home countries were just not quite up to their level. They couldn't have a team that would get them there. And just in that same way, sometimes there are football players who could be some of the best in the world but never go to the Super Bowl. There's baseball players who have been some of the best of all time and never went to a World Series because it's not just about them. They have to have the team behind them. They have to have those who would be on their side. And Christians sometimes wonder if we're going to make it to the end. Are we going to make it to the World Cup? Are we going to make it to the Super Bowl? Are we, just very simply to put it, are we going to make it to heaven? Well, I have good news for you, Christian. You have something a whole lot better than a good team on your side. You have something a whole lot better than the possibility of making it to the end. According to Romans 8.31, Christian, God is for you. God is on your side. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Yes, you will make it, Christian. You will, absolutely, because of God. That's what this is all about. We, we wonder... Will we make it? And this says, we have God. If God is for us, we will be victorious. It starts out in verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? Which kind of says, hey, there's a whole lot that came right before this. You should notice things like that as you're reading your Bible. When you start off in a verse that says, these things, what then? It's saying something has come before this that you should have in mind. Now, there are those who have different interpretations of exactly how much that came before this he's talking about right here. Now, certainly, he's at least talking about what came in verses 29 and 30, that there are those that we call that this is the golden chain of redemption, as we talked about last week, that he foreknew, that he predestined, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he said it pretty plainly. God had a plan from before the foundation of the world, and those that he's going to save, he's going to save to the end. There's no doubt about it. There is nobody who's going to snatch Christ's sheep out of his hand. But probably he's not just talking about those verses. He's probably not even just talking about verse 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I think he's including that as well. But I'm persuaded that he's talking in verse 31 about these things. What shall we say to these things? 
He's talking about everything that goes all the way back to chapter 5. Now, of course, this is a whole book of the Bible that we're in, but it's all set up together, and it's set up in sections and thoughts. And all the way from chapter 5 to the end of chapter 8 is all about the assurance of salvation for those who have faith in Jesus. The first four chapters are all about the fact that we can't be saved by our works. We are saved by faith alone. But then for those who have faith alone, he comes in at the beginning of chapter 5 and says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you would think, well, do we have peace with God even if we were born to Adam and still sense that we have a, a sin nature that we fight against? And he, he goes on and he says, yes, you were dead in Adam, but now you're alive in Christ. He's going to keep you. Well, what, what about the fact that, that we have to fight against sin? Well, he says, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're, you're now alive in Christ. You're now instru- you, you can now present your bodies as instruments of righteousness. You're now a slave to righteousness. And then in chapter 7, boy, you, you're no longer under the law. You're under grace, but we still feel that struggle against sin. And sometimes we feel that struggle against sin, and it, it, it's so heavy on our conscience that we could cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But the answer is this for believers, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that we get to chapter 8, and it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even in our fight against sin, there is no condemnation, and even in our suffering, there is no condemnation, there is no separation. These are the two big problems, the two big categories of problems that came into the lives of human beings after the fall of Adam into sin, is the ongoing presence of sin and the ongoing presence of suffering. Before man fell into sin, human beings, that's Adam and Eve, they were holy and they were happy. But since that time, human beings have fallen to be sinful and suffering. But Romans 8 is all about how, you know what, believer, even though you still are in the fight against sin, there's no condemnation. And believer, even though you suffer, and you may suffer in ways that you never imagined that you would, that that doesn't mean that God has forsaken you, that there is no separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're getting to here. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's think about that first of all, if you're following along in the outline on the back of your bulletin. Let's think first about God being for us. He's speaking here these words of encouragement. And when we think of the word encouragement, we think of you know getting a little bit happier, but there's also an element here of what I'm trying to get across is that he is trying to give us courage in the face of potential fear that we could be lost or that those who would be against our faith could prevail. He says, he's saying here, take courage because God is for you. And if God is for you, then who could be against us? Now, what does it mean for God to be for us? Sometimes you could think of it like a, like a cheerleader or just like fans on the sidelines, right? Well, he's for you. You know, God's saying, go get him, go get him. It's a lot more than that. You can cheer for a team and, and do everything that you possibly can to, to try to encourage them, and yet the other team's just too much for them. God is for us in a much bigger way than just cheering us along. God is for us in terms of being the one who actually does the winning, being the one who gives us the victory. If God is for us, who can be against us means something like this. When you think of, of Exodus 14 as the, as the Israelites were running away from the Egyptians, God had brought them out of the land of Egypt and the Egyptians had finally given up after the end of the ten plagues and with all of these dead firstborn sons and said, get out of here, Israelites. Get out of here, Hebrews. I think that's the word they used. But they told them, 
to, to go. They gave them all of these riches, but then as they were out in the wilderness, the Egyptians changed their minds and decided, no, after all, we don't want to let them go. We're going to chase them down with our army. And so you have this, this group of unarmed civilians who's out in the desert, and they get right up against the Red Sea, and then the greatest, most powerful army in the entire world at that time is coming and approaching on the other side of them. And they have, uh, you know, on the one side, well, we could jump in the sea and drown, or on the other side, we could stay here and maybe punch one or two guys in the face before they kill us, and that's about all we could do. But we're doomed out here. But here's what God says through Moses. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's not the Lord saying, I'm going to cheer you on. That was the Lord parting the Red Sea, performing a miracle like has never seen it was never seen before or since to make the water pile up on the two sides so that they could walk something like 17 miles across on dry ground and then to smash those waters back in on the Egyptian soldiers on the other side. And there's time after time after time in the Scriptures where people are encouraged through those kinds of words. Take courage. Do not fear. The Lord is for you. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. Those kinds of things. Well, this is one to us. This is one to all of us as believers. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, one of the answers to that question of who can be against us is lots and lots of things can be against us. There can be, as it's about to go on and say in in verse 35, tribulation and distress and persecution, and famine, and nakedness, and danger, and sword, and in fact, death, in verse 38, or angels, or rulers, or things present, or things to come, or height, or depth, or all kinds of other things in creation. You could say, well, these could be against us, and in fact, in some circumstances, are against us. There's all kinds of suffering. In Ephesians 6.12, it says that there, there are the rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers over this present darkness that are against us, Satan and all of his demons, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And there are those in this world who are against God's people, by being against the gospel and opposing them. And, and it says in John 16, too, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot to be against us. There's also not just the category of, of suffering specifically out of persecution for the name of Christ, but there's also the suffering that we could endure just in the normal course of this world where we might fool ourselves into thinking, well, if I have trusted in Jesus, if God is on my side, then surely I should be exempt from the possibility of poverty. Or surely I should be exempt from the possibility of disease and pain and suffering. Surely I should be exempt from the sadness of grief. There's all kinds of things that are against us. But you know what it says here? If God is for us, who can be against us? The point is not that there will be never anybody who's against us in our faith or that we'll never suffer or never face anything bad. The point here is, if God is for us, there is no possibility that we are going to come out in hell in the end. There is no possibility that we are going to come out anything less than completely with Jesus in glory, completely, as it says here, not just predestined, not just called, not just justified, but also glorified. We are going to be okay, Christians. One of the ways that it's put uh, in, as Jesus was preaching in his earthly ministry, he says, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing, nothing more that they can do. 
It says, that's the worst possible thing that can happen to you, Christian, is for you to die. But all they can kill is the body. And for those who are in Christ, it says that we will never taste death. Amazing, isn't it? We will pass from life to life in Jesus. So what do we do with this? As we say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, one thing that we should do is we should not fear, especially fear of man. We're to fear God. God's the one who has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. But we're not to fear man. There's all kinds of things around us that would tell us you need to fear You need to back off from your faith because you could have trouble if you continue down this path of being the so-called goody-two-shoes, of being the oppressor, (laughs) as some would like to call it when we try to stay faithful to the Lord. It says in Revelation 21.8, though, the very first thing on the list when it talks about those who will not enter the kingdom those who are going to be cast into the lake of fire, it says, the cowards. The cowards. Those who didn't trust in Christ, and as a result of their not trusting in Christ, they were willing to fear man, to cower before man, to be unfaithful to God because man around them demanded it. Now, of course, that, that one of the primary ways that we're threatened with that in America right now I'd say the primary way that we're threatened with that in America right now is the threat you absolutely must give affirmation to what the Bible calls the sinful desires of the flesh. As long as those sinful desires of the flesh are popular within our culture, and especially if someone in your own family has those sinful desires of the flesh, Boy, if you don't give affirmation to these sinful desires of the flesh and come to this same-sex wedding, then you just don't love us. And we don't know if we can count you as part of the family anymore. Those kinds of temptations come up against Christians on a regular basis now. To fear man and to say, well, I know God is for me. Who can be against me? But you know what? I care about my nephew, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be unfaithful to God in this way so that I can preserve my relationship with my nephew. Sometimes they call that moral relativism because it's your relative. But not just there, but also could be something at work where they say, I mean, there, there have been high-profile cases of people being fired from prominent positions because it got found out that they were members of an evangelical church which therefore means that they probably don't affirm those desires of the flesh that are popular in the culture. I'm just giving this as one example because it's, it's probably the main way that we're tempted to fear man, to cower and to say, oh no, they're against us, let's give in. But of course, around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ face stuff that's a lot worse than that. There, there are people who are dying in places like Afghanistan, places like North Korea, and places all over the world that you never hear about as well for coming to Christ and standing firm in Christ. But this says, here's the reality. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. No one can prevail against us if God is for us. Now, one other thing to think about with God being for us, what if I... I'm convicted of my sin. And I look back and I say, I think I trust in Jesus, but how could I have done what I did? Now, the call of God in that is to repent. Sometimes that repentance is going to involve discipline. Sometimes it's going to involve earthly loss. It's going to involve confession, might involve tears and mourning over that sin. But here's the big question. Is God going to turn against you for your sin, believer? No, he's not. Believer, when you're in Christ, God is not against you for your sin. 
He is for you against your sin. I didn't make that up. Don't quote that and say, dash Daniel Wigginton. I don't know who made that up, but I love it. Believer, God is not against you for your sin. He is for you against your sin. And so even if you say, but my sin could be against me to carry me down to hell, you go to this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He'll do it. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and it's been shed for us. His love has been shed, shown in the shedding of the blood of Christ on the cross for us. But another thing, just before we get off of verse, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's not be against each other. As brothers and sisters in Christ, it says right here, God is for us. And that doesn't just mean for you individually. It also means for the other people who are trusting in Jesus. Could be your fellow church members. Could be people out in other churches. Could be people across the world. Could be people who legitimately have some things wrong, and and yet they're trusting in Christ, and there are brothers and sisters in Christ. And even if we have to have discussions sometimes of how, how can we resolve these misunderstandings and these, these disagreements and those kinds of things, let's not be against each other, okay? Let, let's be for each other against our sin, just like God is for us against our sin as well. Second thing that it tells us here is that God is for us in giving his son and giving us all things. This is verse 32. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the evidence that he brings in. When he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He says, look at this. God didn't spare his own son. If you were going to think to yourself, well, what, what could God hold back? There's all kinds of things that God could hold back. God owns everything. He's the the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. But listen to this. God didn't spare his own son. God the Father did not spare God the Son, but it says he gave him up for us all. Just think about that. It says right here that God gave up his son. That means it was God's plan all along. This wasn't the kind of thing where God was trying to figure out what to do after sin came into the world. Oh no, I guess my son's doomed now. It's not the kind of thing where God was just trying to figure out how to handle things when the crowd suddenly started shouting crucify him and God never saw that coming. No, this was, this was God's plan all along. It says in Acts 2.23 that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is God's doing. It says in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So who, who is it that did this? Who is it that put Jesus on the cross? Did Judas kill Jesus? Yes, he did. Did the Jewish leaders who gathered together and condemned Jesus to death, did they kill Jesus? Yes, they did. Did the Roman leaders who put on this trial and ultimately sent their soldiers to nail him to the cross, did, did they kill Jesus? Yes, they did. And what about, what about that crowd, that jeering crowd who was around Pontius Pilate yelling, crucify him? Did they kill Jesus? Yes, they did. What about me? What about you? Did I kill Jesus with my sin? Yes, I did. But ultimately, ultimately, it was God the Father who ordained the death of God the Son Jesus on the cross in his humanity to go and to take on our sin, to die for it, to put it away forever. This, this was the agreement. This is one of these things that's just so hard to wrap our minds around, and you could, could and maybe should spend your entire life contemplating this. How is it that God within himself, one God in three persons, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God. What is that agreement within himself? Sometimes we refer to it as the covenant of redemption. But you see it here in, in places like this, that he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Well, that, that's not like God the Father saying, oh, sorry, Jesus, you really didn't want to do this, but here goes nothing. No, this, this is the plan of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit where God the Father set up all of these things and the, the foreknowing and the predestining, as it said in verse 29, where God the Son, Jesus, came and, and actually carried out our redemption in his perfect life, his perfect death, his resurrection and his ascension, where, where the Holy Spirit is the one who comes and takes the perfect plan of the Father and the perfect accomplishment of the Son and perfectly applies it to our hearts and makes us born again. This is, this is the plan of God from before the foundation of the world, and he brought it to pass in crushing his own son for our iniquities. He gave him up for us all, it says. But what did Christ die for? Why, why did this happen? Well, it says he, he gave him up for us, for us. We're going to expand on that a little bit more in a second, but let's just think about what this was for. What was he doing for us when he died? That's, By the way, that's what it means when it says he gave him up. It's talking about the cross. What does it mean that he gave him up for us? Well, it means that he gave him up in our place for our sins. Now, there are some out there who will, who will say things like, oh, well, look at this verse in the Bible that seems to say that the reason that Jesus died was so that he could then be raised and show his victory. So, so this was not really about sin. It was about showing himself to be victory, to have victory. Well, it did show him to have victory and much more than that. Or there are some who would say, well, look, look at this verse. It looks like the reason that, that God delivered up his son was to show that he is very serious about sin across the whole world, so serious that he wants to, to publicly demonstrate that sin deserves death for all mankind. He's showing his moral government. Well, yes, but much, much more than that, too. And what about those who would say, well, Jesus seems to have been delivered up, and if you look at this verse, it looks like that he was being an example to us. Right? That, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And so, so maybe that's really what it was about, to show that example. Well, yes, but much, much more than that. And when you get down to the heart of it, what the Bible says is the, the reason, the primary reason why Jesus went to the cross. It's because we couldn't pay for our sins. It's because God is both just in punishing sin and merciful and gracious in forgiving sin. And the cross is how it comes together. The perfect punishment for our sins that gives us perfect grace. It's that he is paying the penalty for our sins as a substitute in our place. The theological term for that is penal substitutionary atonement. And theologians didn't make it up. Here it is in Isaiah 53. It says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He put our sin on Jesus so that it could be put away forever and that we could receive his righteousness, as it says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. 1 Peter 2.24 2, says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Or 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Or Romans 3, back earlier in the same book of the Bible. Verse 23 says, verse 24, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. A propitiation. 
When we were in that verse, I told you that if you look in your Bible at Romans 3.25, and it has a word in your translation other than propitiation, then you need to get a new translation of the Bible. And I know that that might cost you some money, and I'm willing to help you pay for it, okay? Because what that's saying is that there is not just a general sacrifice, not just a general kind of a, well, we hope this means something. This was a putting away of the wrath of God, a turning away, a satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sins in his death to pay for it once for all. That's what it means when it says he, he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, that he propitiated Jesus, God the Son, propitiated the wrath of God the Father for my sins when he took it and died on the cross in my place. And you know what it says? It says it's to be received by faith. We actually were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But there comes a time when the Holy Spirit comes and applies the finished work of Christ to our hearts. And we believe. And if you want to receive the forgiveness of your sins, then come to Jesus in faith. Come to Jesus in faith. It's offered to you. I'm offering it to you guys up in the balcony right now. And you guys, the kids who've grown up in Christian homes and you've been hearing this your whole life, this is offered to you. Not just to know just the general idea that, yeah, Jesus died for sins and he's good and we like to sing songs in church and be good people, but that we actually deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus was given as a propitiation for our sins to be received by faith. Receive it. Receive it. Question. Not just what did Jesus die for, but who did Jesus die for? That's answered in these verses. It says in verse 32 that he gave us up, he gave him up for us all. Now, if you just stopped at those words, there could be all kinds of interpretations of what does it mean by us all? Does it mean everybody in Rome? Does it mean everybody in the entire world? Does it mean everybody in a particular church? Well, he answers the question. He answers it by saying this, that he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you hear what he just said there? He said that if Christ was given up on the cross for someone, that person will graciously receive all things from God. And then he goes on and he, he, he explains, he uses an even clearer word in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You hear that? He's, he's pretty directly saying, these are the people that God has sent his son to die for. These are the people that Jesus was given up as a substitutionary penal atonement this propitiation of the wrath of God for their sins, it was for the elect. It was for those that he was talking about in verse 28 when he says those who love God, those who are called to, according to his purpose. For those he's talking about in verse 29, those he foreknew and predestined, those he's going to justify and glorify. He, he, this is one of the more clear passages in the Scripture that pretty directly says... Here is who Jesus died for. It's for the elect. And if Jesus has died for someone, they will be saved. He will graciously give us all things. Now, does that mean they're going to be saved without believing? Absolutely not. Does that mean that they're going to believe without hearing the gospel? Absolutely not. He's going to make that clear as he gets into chapter 10. God is going to appoint the means, but here's the amazing thing. Jesus died for specific people. Let me, let me read you some other verses that have to do with this. In John 17, the, as, as Jesus was praying for the people that he was going to the cross for, this was as he was in the garden the night before he was crucified, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. 
And he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. See, he knew exactly who it was, every individual of all time, whose sins he was taking on himself when he went to the cross. He knew you, believer. And he was praying for you, specifically, as he went to the cross. He says in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and I I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, I know who it is that the Father's given me, and I'm laying my life down for them. Or Ephesians 5.25, it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, some people would say, well, yeah, he loved the church and gave himself up for her, and he also loved everybody in the whole world and gave himself up for all of them. But listen to what it says about what will happen for those that he gave himself up for. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's saying when Jesus has given himself up for someone, They are part of his church, and he will present them spotless before God. He absolutely will. It says in John 11.52 that Jesus died not only for the nation, but also for the children of God who are scattered abroad, which answers for us the question of why does the Bible sometimes say that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world? Well, it's because... He, he died for the children of God who are scattered across the whole world. Or as he puts it in Revelation 5.9, By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That means across the entire world, out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, there are specific people who are among the elect of God that Jesus has shed his blood and he will save them. And that's what it says here. If you're looking on your outline, it says, Jesus never fails. I know that those of you who have been in this church a long time know that reality. Jesus never fails. He says in Isaiah 46.10, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He says, I've just I've got to go back to the text we're in. I don't want to get too far from it. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the point. If Jesus has died for you, he will graciously give you all things. He's not going to fail. His blood is not going to be poured out for nothing. Not one drop of his grace is going to be lost. It's just like it says in Leviticus. You guys read Leviticus? I know a a lot of you, you probably start reading Leviticus about like, I don't know, February 1st every year. But if you've you've read through Leviticus, you may have noticed that that when there's these instructions for giving um, sin offerings, and it could be for unintentional sins of individuals or unintentional sins of the whole people or for this sin or for that sin. But it just says over and over and over, the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. It's the same concept with Jesus. If Christ the high priest has made atonement for you, you shall be forgiven. You shall be forgiven. Not one drop of Christ's blood is going to be wasted on some potential atonement for some people who may or may not eventually make it to heaven, who may or may not suffer under the wrath of God for all eternity. If Christ has died for his sheep, he will bring them home, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. What do you do with that? Well, two things. Take comfort and take confidence. Take comfort, believer, when you think of the cross to know that Jesus had you on his mind. He didn't just have a general sense of, boy, there's a lot of sin in this world, and this sure is bad. He had you by name in mind in his intention to redeem you by his blood. And he's not going to let you go. He will accomplish all his purpose. Take comfort in that. 
and take confidence in your evangelism. It's, it's easy to think, boy, if we say that Jesus didn't die for everybody, then how can I possibly tell anybody to come to Jesus? Well, here's, here's, here's the confidence, though. Jesus freely offered himself to people. He said, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we're called to make that same free offer, but with this confidence. If Christ has shed his blood for this soul right in front of me, they will come. The gospel will be effective. The Holy Spirit will apply the gospel to their hearts so that they will believe. Jesus' death will have actually purchased their faith. And we can have confidence as we go and share the gospel that Jesus is not going to fail, that we can say to them something like, not Jesus died for you and will you let it be wasted, because that's not possible. But we can say, Jesus died for sinners just like you, and he offers you to come. Will you come? He made a propitiation for sin to be received by faith. Will you receive it by faith? Will you come? And we can take confidence God will save his people, even if they seem to us like the least likely possible people to believe. Because that's the only kind of people that Jesus saves. It's unlikely people. That's the only kind. Let's look at verse 33 and see that God is for us against all charges. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, are there charges that could be brought against us? Let me me just ask you this. If you got brought into a courtroom and there was some really determined prosecutor who wanted to find some violation of some law somewhere in your life, do you think he could come up with something? I hate to break this to you, but the answer is yes. Yes, he could. He definitely could. And how much more could it be that Satan, the accuser of the brethren, if he wants to come into the courtroom of God and to bring accusations and charges against us, and if if you think about the things that he's seen you do, you think Satan has any charges that he could bring against you? Of course. But do you know what it says here? None of those are going to stand for God's people. None of those are going to stand for Christians. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The greatest picture of this, maybe the greatest picture of this in Scripture is in Zechariah chapter 3, where the prophet Zechariah has a vision of the high priest Joshua. As the high priest is going into the temple, that that Zechariah is allowed to see not just what's going on in the temple, but what's going on in heaven. And it says that there's this scene. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. You hear that? Satan would love to say, look, his garments are filthy. Now, of course, as he was standing physically in the temple, he wasn't wearing filthy garments. But in heaven, his sin was on display. And Satan was there to say, look, this man has no right to approach the throne. But here's what it says. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And, he, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. You know what that means, believer? It means that... God is the one who justifies. God is the one who's able to take away the filthy garments of our sin. God is able to, because of the blood of Jesus that's been shed for us, he's able to take our sin and to put it as far as the east is from the west. He's able to say, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 
That's amazing, isn't it? I will not remember your sins. So we need to not be shaken by the accusations, by the charges of Satan, even if there are some truth to them, because it is God who justifies. Trust in Christ, and you will stand before God. Another thing, too, I mentioned this when we were saying that God is for us, that we ought not to be against our brothers. Don't get on the side of Satan as the accuser of your brothers. There's already a great accuser out there. He's at work, and he's going to be thrown down. And it says in in Revelation, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. You may think to yourself, well, I'm just standing up for the truth. Well, maybe you're standing up for the truth. Maybe you're speaking the truth in love. But maybe when you're going after this broad idea of the church, maybe when you're talking about how many hypocrites there are everywhere, maybe when you are calling out faithful gospel preachers because of something that you disagree with them about, maybe you're standing as an accuser. Maybe your accusations are among those that cannot stand against God's elect because it is God who justifies. Now again, does this mean we never call out sin? We need to be for each other against our sin, not against each other, not accusers of the brothers on the side of Satan. And then finally, it's God who is for us against all condemnation. You know, there's those charges that get brought, and then there's the sentence. It says right here, the charges against us can't stand, but the sentence against us can't stand either. And what's the reason? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's the first reason that the judgment will not come upon us, believers. We will stand in the day of judgment because Christ has died for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. That perishing is the condemnation that it's talking about. We would not be condemned, we will not perish, but instead we'll have eternal life. It's by faith in the crucified Savior that we have eternal life. We're not condemned. But he says even more than that, not just because of Christ's death, but because of Christ's resurrection. More than that, who was raised, as it says in Romans 4.25, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Guys, if Jesus hadn't been raised, you'd be doomed. I'd be doomed. We'd all be doomed. Jesus would still be somewhere trying to finish paying for our sins unsuccessfully. But that's not who Jesus is. As the one who is fully man and fully God, perfectly sinless, he could go to the cross and in one single act of righteousness put our sin away forever and rise from the dead on the third day. Believer, you need to think this to yourself. Christ went before me to death. He finished paying my penalty, and he got up alive. I'm going to be okay. And it's because of Christ's authority it says, he was raised and is at the right hand of, the, of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's at the right hand of God. It's just like he, he told his disciples when he was leaving them and ascending into heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's reigning on the throne right now, and he's the one who's redeemed you. This is the way Charles Hodge put it. Christ is exalted to universal dominion, All power in heaven and on earth is given into his hands. And if this is the case, how great the security it affords the believer. He who is engaged to effect this salvation is the director of all events and of all worlds. Guys, the one who took your condemnation is the one who's in charge of everything. Everything. You're going to be okay. And it's because of Christ's intercession. It says he's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We talked earlier in in the book of Romans in verse 26 about the Holy Spirit interceding for us and the Holy Spirit sort of helping along our prayers when we don't know how we ought to be praying. He fixes them on the way up. 
And Jesus is interceding for us in things that you never thought to pray for. He was praying for you in the garden thousands of years before you were born. He ascended into heaven, and he has been bringing the things that you need to the Father for that entire time. He's been taking the blood that he shed and applying it on the mercy seat of heaven, interceding for us. Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, <coughs> Excuse me. he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's what he's doing. He's taking the blood that he has shed and applying it and interceding for us and preparing a place in heaven for us. Heaven wouldn't be ready for you if not for Jesus going there and preparing a place. And you would definitely not be ready for heaven if not for Jesus doing that. But he is there and he is making sure you're going to make it and praying exactly the right things for you. You can just remember, the one who died for me, he rose victorious, he rules over everything, he's the one who's making sure that everything goes according to plan for me to make it to glory. I'm going to be okay. Trust in Christ, the propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. Receive it by faith. And as those who've received it by faith, you can have this confidence, if God is for us, no one can be against us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, what Christ has done for us, to shed his own blood for us, in our place, for our sins, by name. Lord, I pray that you'd give us just an overwhelming comfort and confidence. Uh, Lord, I pray that, Lord, that you would carry us all the way home. We know that that's a prayer that you will answer. We won't be snatched out of your hand. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us to die, to rise from the dead, to ascend to the right hand of the Father, to intercede for us, to make sure that we will make it. Father, I pray for... The many situations that are represented in the people right around us right now, there's, there's all kinds of things where there are feelings of uh, people and circumstances and uh, the spiritual forces of darkness being against them, illnesses and difficulties and pains. Lord, I pray that you would grant them by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the finished work of Christ. Lord, grant them to have courage and confidence to stay firm, to hold fast to the end and receive that crown of life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.